Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. If we were to imagine the life of Jesus as a highway, there are several signs along the way that tell us something important from the very mouth of God about who Jesus is and where he's going. Three big ones in particular. The first, of course, is at his baptism when we hear the voice of the Father saying from heaven, this is my son, the beloved. Before any miracle is done, before anything is taught, the voice of the Father affirms and inaugurates Jesus, sort of sends him on his way. Of course, the, the final really big sign is at the end of Jesus' ministry. In his crucifixion and resurrection, we again hear the voice of the Father, and we know that Jesus has come to his end. This was his destination the whole time he's arrived. But right between those two, in the middle of Luke's gospel, there stands this third sign that we call the story of the transfiguration. Jesus has just turned onto the main highway of his ultimate destiny. Just before this, right before this st story there in chapter 9, Jesus has been telling his disciples, I've, I've got a big fork in the road that I'm going to be turning on. I'm going to head south to Jerusalem. There I'm going to be suffered. I'm going to suffer and be handed over to the authorities. The road's going to be tough and it's going to be long, and the end is going to be even rougher. And so as a kind of confirmation of this turn that Jesus takes, we have another big sign that tells us and confirms Jesus' direction and identity. But this sign that we call the transfiguration is really tough to read if we fly by it. It's, it's like one of those historical markers on the side of the road that is so chock full of information that if you want to understand anything about what it's saying, you've got to stop, take a minute, look at it carefully, and try to imagine the way that the landscape doesn't look like it does now. It hasn't always looked like this. The first clue that this is in part a story about the past, Israel's past, is right there in the first line. Luke tells us Jesus took his disciples up on the mountain to pray. What mountain? We're not told because it's not a mountain, it's the mountain. The mountain that orients Israel's imagination, an Ebenezer in the landscape of their identity. Next, Luke says that Moses and Elijah were seen there talking with Jesus about his departure. Only that's not the word that Luke actually uses. The word that he uses is that they were talking to him about his exodus. Oh, oh, th this is a marker of the past. This is in part a re-narration of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. You, you remember that story, right? 
how God led the people out of slavery to Pharaoh with mighty, mighty signs. Then he outstretched his arm over the sea and they passed through on dry land. And then what happened? They came to the mountain and they camped. And the Lord spoke to the people and to Moses and said, I want you to set up a fence around the mountain and don't let anyone break through that barrier. If they do, they'll die. Now that's, that's quite odd. Uh, you would think that if God wanted to know the people, and, and more importantly, if God wanted the people to know him, then why start out with threats? That's awfully, that's awfully odd. And why couldn't have God have just said, uh, I'm going to come down to you and it's going to be so great. I'm, I'm just going to love you and you're going to love me and it's going to be wonderful and we're, we're going to be so happy together. Well, uh, while that might be indeed what God wants, there's a problem in that God and us are not made out of the same stuff. The Bible tells us everywhere that God is holy, that God is pure, God is just, God is good and abounding in steadfast love and compassion. And we're, well, we're not. And what happens when you put two things of dissimilar substances together in vastly different concentration? What happens? If you have a small fire and you throw a 50-gallon drum of water on it, the fire will immediately be extinguished. Or if you have a raging forest fire and you throw a little cup of water on that fire, it will be vaporized. And so what happens when you put a little human being up on top of a mountain with the fullness of the presence of God? What is human will be swallowed up and devoured so God says, I, I want to know you. I want to come near to you, but please be careful. And they say, we hear you, Lord. Uh, we're going to do everything that you say. So God asks Moses to come up onto the mountain on behalf of the people. And there God gives him from his own mouth the law that will show them the terms by which they can know God and have a relationship with God. Now, the law seems awfully dry and removed from the idea of intimacy. But if you think about it, even in human terms, aren't there always rules for intimacy? Any of you who have been married for very long at all know that there are rules there are things that you can do, should do, and shouldn't do that will determine the scope of your intimacy, right? The, the, the rules might be even more powerful for being unstated, but there are ways that your lover has of letting you know what, what they are, right? You throw your muddy boots up on the brand new sofa and intimacy is not going to be possible, right? <laughs> So, God, so the law of God is God's way of letting his people know what they have to do and who they have to be in order to come close to him. 
So God tells his people, I want you to know me and I want to love you, but there are some ground rules. And so while God is showing all of this to Moses, the people are down in the valley admitting to themselves finally that they're just not that into God. They want to get their kicks and just move on, if you know what I mean. They say to Aaron, make for us a God who will go before us. Now, it's important to realize what it is that they're asking for here. They're not asking for a different God. They're asking for the benefits of knowing Yahweh without actually having to know Yahweh. And the clue in that is the the language that they use. They say, make for us a God who will go before us. Well, that's Yahweh language. The Lord had said, I will go before you. I'll make a path through the wilderness. I'll make a way. I'll help you conquer your enemies. I will protect you. I will make you secure. I will feed you. I will go before you. And they say, great. But that doesn't mean that we have to uh, stick around and actually talk to you, does it? We just want the land that's flowing with the milk and honey. And whatever you can do to make that happen would be great. And in a way, Peter is doing something similar when he encounters the transfigured Christ on the mountain. It's not that Peter is being intentionally blasphemous in the way that Israel was which is why Luke says with his characteristically dry humor, he spoke as one who knew not what he said. It's just that in Peter's mind, the circuits have all blown. He could not comprehend that Jesus was not only the anointed one of God, the Messiah, but that he was God. Like Israel, Before him, Peter wants a more readily accessible and more tangible version of God. Let's make a tent for you and I'll be able to locate you. I'll be able to keep you here. But fortunately, Peter doesn't get what he wants. The really interesting thing about the Exodus narrative, though, is that Israel almost did get what they want. One of the most interesting things is when God offers to give Israel what they want, he says, uh, okay, Moses, I'll tell you what I'll do. The people are down there. They want one to go before them. Here's what we'll do. I'll give you the land of milk and honey. I'll give you victory over your enemies, but my presence will not go with you. I'll send my angel to go before you, but I'm not going to give you me. Now pause for a second and ask yourself what you would do had you been Moses. God is saying, in effect, I'll give you power and I'll give you money. I'll give you all the benefits of knowing me without having to actually bother with uh, right behavior or having to get up in the morning and go to actually worship me. I'll give you all the stuff I'm afraid that if the way we live our lives is any indication, most of us would have taken that deal. I mean, you think about 
What if you could have all the good stuff that comes from knowing God without having to bother? I had a friend recently who told me, he said, you know, when I was uh, raised in the youth group and in the church, we were always told, if, if you stay pure and you honor God in your, in your romantic relationships, then, then God will honor you. And God will one day give you a, a, a family. He'll give you a lovely wife. And so just do all the right stuff and you'll, you, you'll get it. He said, then I woke up one day and I was 42 years old and I was lonely as ever. And I realized that I was mad at God because I had been doing all the right things the whole time. And now I had nothing to show for it. And it took me years to realize that what I was worshiping was not God but what God could give me. Friends, if there is anything in your life that you are using God to get to, that thing is an idol. We call that an idol. And the better the thing, the better an idol it makes. It could be wonderful things. It could be uh, peace in your heart and serenity. It could be... Um, it could be the, the mercy of God. You, you know you need mercy, so, so you find God merciful, and that's good, and that's true. But it can also be an idol. It's especially true when those things are good. I mean, you think about for Peter. He was really excited to see how powerful Jesus actually was. Think about what you can do with divine power manifested on a mountain, why you can throw off the, the yoke of Roman oppression. God's people can finally in, enter into their final glory as has been promised from the mountain. I mean, how many times did Jesus' disciples try to trade him in for what he could do for them? Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit at your right hand? And the strange thing is, Christian friends, in the daily orientation of your heart, it is as though God is saying to you, you want the stuff? Okay, I'll give you the stuff, but I won't give you me. But fortunately, Moses doesn't take the deal. Moses says to God, don't send us up if you won't go with us promise you'll send your presence because how will we be any different than the nations? How will we be recognized? If you don't go with us, we'll be just like everybody else. Notice that Moses is entering into identity language. How, how do you know who you are? Is it because you're successful in business? Is it because you have a beautiful family? Is it because people have always thought you're smart? Is that what makes you who you are? Moses says, no, the presence of the Lord is what makes us who we are. You can just keep all that stuff and give me you. And then Moses says one more thing that gets us a step closer to the transfiguration. He says, Lord, I don't want to just hear you and talk to you. I want to see you. I want to behold your glory. I want you for you and nothing else. And God says, nope, not a chance. 
says, I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses. I'll give you just a little bit of my shining forth, just enough through the cracks of my fingers as I hide you in the cleft of the rock. And even that will make you so strange and so different that, pe that, that people will be threatened by you. But Luke tells us that the disciples were given what Moses longed to see. Only Luke's gospel uses that word glory, and they beheld his glory. Now, what, what, what is that? That's, that's not a word we use a lot. Is it just that Jesus' clothes shined and his face became bright like the sun? What's, what's, the, what's the point of that? So what is it to see the glory of God? Well, in part, it's to see God as beautiful. To see God as beautiful. To see anything as beautiful is to desire the thing in itself. Think, think for a second. We've all got these. Think for a second about something that you saw in your life that you would say is one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. You got it? Could be a poem, a painting, a mountaintop, a sunset, a lake, whatever it is. When you saw that thing as beautiful, there was a part of you that felt like you were being taken up out of yourself. A part of you that realized that this thing is out there and because of its being there, the world is better than I thought it was. The world is good. To experience something as beautiful is to realize that the world is sheer gift. It's to say, like Peter did, it is good for us to be here. It's good. It's to uh, affirm the words of the creator, that refrain from Genesis 1, and it is good, it is good, yea, it is very good. Now think about how different it is to revel in the beauty uh, and goodness of the world like that. Think about how different that is from the kind of person who takes a selfie of themselves with a Van Gogh painting over their shoulder. If you ever do that, Deacon Joe will find you. <laughs> now, the person who does that is demonstrating to the world that they have not looked at the painting. I can assure you, if you've ever seen Van Gogh in person, I, I had always admired Van Gogh's colors, his composition, his subject matter as I looked at his paintings in a, in a book. But to stand before Van Gogh's The Olive Grove, and to see the way that the pigment is piled up on the canvas, and there's a depth there that makes, makes it seem like the wind is swooshing through the olive trees, and it comes alive, and you're not merely looking at it, you're not possessing it with your gaze as, as much as you are being taken up into it, and saying, wow, I didn't know that this was even possible. The beauty of the thing is not in what it does for you so much as it is in the experience of standing before it 
of being taken up into it. And if this is the response that we feel before the beauty of the world, how much more so the response that is demanded by the glory of God? How, how can we utter our mild retractions for these things that must pass away without lifting up our voices to praise the glory of the Lord and giver of life? How can we see him, though? How can we see him for who he is and not just what we want him to be? I mean, clearly there were plenty of people in Jesus' day who did just that. About them, Jesus said, seeing they do not see. They looked right at him and did not see anything about his depth. Earlier I said that this story is like a, a pin that's been dropped on a road map, a, a sign that tells us where he's at and who he is. But you know, depending on how you look at a map, it can yield very different information, can it? It's one thing to look at a map of Christ's life in 2D and to say, well, he started up here in Galilee and then he went over here to Capernaum and then he went down to Jerusalem. This thing happened and that thing happened and what happens to happen is what happens. Even a, a historian of, of, of mild qualifications could know those things. But the story of the transfiguration invites us to see the landscape of Christ's existence in 3D. You know how it is when you're looking at a map in street view and you hit that little button that says 3D and suddenly the mountains rise up before you and the river valleys fall away and you realize there's so much more depth in this view. The reality of the transfiguration rotates the map to show us the heights and the depths of the love of God in Christ Jesus. But the thing is, we'll never see the heights of his glory without also understanding the depths of his suffering. We'll never understand his humility if we don't also see at the same time the grandeur of his glory. We have to perceive the whole all at once, just like that Van Gogh painting. You, you kind of take the whole thing in at once. And one of the best places in Scripture that shows us how that looks is the prologue of John's Gospel. And the Word became flesh. The Word, the, the Logos, the eternal Son of God, eternally begotten, not made, the wisdom of God, light from light, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And from this fullness, from that beholding, from this fullness, we have grace upon grace. In other words, the way that you receive the grace of God, the good things that God has for you, is first beholding the glory of God in all of his fullness. But you don't behold the glory in order to get the stuff. Viewed in spiritual 3D, the narrative arc of Christ's life is like a giant you. Up here on the top, he was with God and he was God. And then he humbled himself as he came down. He humbled himself and became obedient. And therefore, he was highly exalted. 
The transfiguration takes place on the way down. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, not quite at the crook of the U, but on his way there. And it's a sneak peek at both the scenes of divine glory from which he came and to which he was going, as well as an entrance into his suffering and death. And this is, is like an apocalyptic drama, a scene that God paints where he pulls back the veil, he pulls back the curtain on the stage, and there is Jesus for who he truly is. And so it takes place for two audiences at one time. Down below, like in a Shakespeare play, there are the groundlings, the people on the floor, the disciples, Peter, John, and James. They knew him in his human character, but for them to see the divine manifestation flowing out of him, that was news. And then there are people up in the gallery, Elijah and Moses. They have seen him in his divine glory. They've experienced it. But they did not know that the glory of God was so grand that it would confine itself to human form and flesh. Forgive me, but I, I can't help but imagine what they were saying to Jesus. We're told that they were talking to him about his exodus. Perhaps Elijah was saying, Ah, it's you at last. I called down fire to consume the prophets of Baal on this very mountain. But you, you will take the fire of God's wrath into your very person and absorb it for all time. In the days of Jezebel, I told the truth at threat to my life, but you will bear witness to the truth at the cost of your life. And what about Moses? Perhaps he was saying, I delivered your people from enslavement to Pharaoh, but you will deliver them from slavery to sin and death. I risked death to stand up to Pharaoh, but you will suffer death to free them for all time. I see now, I see now, O lamb that was slain, that it was your blood that was sprinkled on the doorpost that made the destroyer pass by. And it was your visage that I longed to look upon as I was hidden in the cleft of the rock. Do you realize, do you realize that the glory of God is so magnificent that it must be praised not by human lips alone, but by the glorious company of the apostles, the noble fellowship of prophets, the white-robed army of martyrs. Didn't our Lord say that if we failed to praise him, the very rocks would cry out? And so the transfiguration calls for praise from above and below. And it also re-narrates and reminds us of our history as God's people. But the best thing of all is that the transfiguration is a sign that points us to our future and our ultimate destiny. The transfiguring glory of God 
is always drawing us up that mountain. Even though we initially come to God for all the wrong reasons, God doesn't leave us in our selfishness. The glory of God is always shining forth, conforming us to its beauty. And God's love does not demand that we get our intentions right before God will love us. That's not the gospel. The love of God is so good, so creative, that he can work in and through our rotten hearts to make us the kind of people who can know him. Isn't this what Paul says in 2 Corinthians? He says, we even now have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us see Christ by making us like Christ. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And all of this comes from the Lord the Spirit. There's a lovely old fairy tale that I think illustrates this transformative process. Once upon a time, there was a man who fell in love with a fair young maiden. She was as lovely on the inside as she was on the out. But he feared that he would never have her hand because he was hideous in appearance and he had a cruel character to match. And so he hatched a plan. He went to see the mask maker and said, can you make me a mask that will make me lovely to the one whom I love? The mask maker said, but of course. And it worked. He won her hand they were married, and a year of increasing happiness ensued, and she was overjoyed, but he carried within him the dark knowledge that perhaps she didn't love him for who he was, but for his mask. And with a heavy heart, he went back to the mask maker and said, true love can broker no deceit. I want her to love me. Please remove the mask. The mask maker said, very well, as you ask. On his way home with fear and trembling, he could just imagine the horror on her face when she came out of the house to greet him and saw the hideousness of his appearance. But as he approached, she waved and ran to him and embraced him. There was no fear, no anxiety, no revulsion. He thought, how could this be? And so he ran into the house and gazed into the mirror and there, to his utter surprise, was a face as handsome as the mask had been. He didn't understand. He went back to the mask maker and the maker said, you've changed. You loved a beautiful person and you have become beautiful too. You became beautiful by loving her. You became like the face of the one whom you love. Friends, isn't this what we're trying to do in worship? Or when we attend to the voice of the Lord in Scripture? When we spend time in the presence of the one whom we love and thereby hope to become like him? 
Thanks be to God for the gift of his spirit that even now is allowing us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and who is also conforming us to the image of him whom we gaze upon. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.